Welcome to Failed Architecture Breeze Blocks, where our editors share their thoughts on works in progress, urgent matters, and current happenings in architecture and spatial politics. My name is Charlie Clemos. I'm an editor on the Netherlands team of Failed Architecture and one of Failed Architecture's organizers at the moment. And today I'm joined by my fellow Failed Architecture editors, Daphne Backer and Chiara Dorbelo to talk about their project, Stories on Earth, which is Failed Architecture's contribution to the parallel program of the Dutch Pavilion of the 17th Venice Architecture Biennale. And this video series brings together storytelling and design to challenge the spatial settings that pit humanity against nature. Hi, Daphne. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Chiara. Hi, Charlie. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Um, so I think it'd be nice to start by just introducing the project. Um, I, uh, I've i sort of um, followed it since it was originally pitched and I'd be interested to see how it's evolved in the nearly two years since that time. Uh, obviously, there was a pandemic in the way of that that, that um, extended your involvement. Yeah, well, of course, the parallel program was responding to the question who is we, which in turn was responding to Sarkis' curatorial question, how will we live together? And I think that from the beginning, Daphne and I have been thinking about how maybe these questions can be, can feel at least sometimes too big for the architecture discipline. So we've been discussing possibilities in which we could acknowledge like the fact that these questions, of course, they have a special component. Well, yes, we were like trying to acknowledge the fact that we still believe that, of course, there is something to be said about space and how we inhabit space. But at the same time, these questions uh, require something a little bit bigger than just a different space or like a different design of space. So in a way, we were like trying to think of how we could combine something different. And we thought about stories and we thought about the fact that maybe, you know, if we could foster these collaborations between writers and designers, we were going to be able to have like a more profound impact on people who would like look at this exhibition or like be involved with it. So you mentioned the writer-designer pairings, quite an interesting array of different artistic practitioners. Um, I'd be interested to know if one of you could kind of elaborate on your reasons for inviting these particular people to kind of comment on the on the topic of of the project and how that collaboration has kind of developed over the two years. So for the designers, we decided to rely on our network, of course. So we, we sort of thought about practitioners that we knew and that we thought were a good fit for the projects and for like the, you know, concepts that we were exploring. So we asked Angelo Renna, he, he is a landscape designer and he has always been in a way very interested in the relationship between, I, I still always want to say humans and animals, but of course that shouldn't be how we say it. Well, the, the, well, the relationship between humans and other 
animal species, let's say. And he had already worked on different projects, for example, on the zoological gardens. He played around with designing architectural structures that were uh, basically creating perfect houses for animals. And he also made some drawings in which he imagined cities in which different species would live together. So we thought he was a very good fit for this project. Then Anna Fink is also a landscape designer. She's also a book designer, and she has been working a lot with forests. So she has developed, I think, two or three projects already in which she looks at how uh, forests somehow shape the lives of people who inhabit, but also own and work them. And yeah, we thought that was fascinating in a way because she was already answering the Biennale question about how we are already living together with, you know, different entities, or in some cases at least, you know. And then, of course, there's Amne. She's the third designer, and you know her, of course, because she's one of our failed architecture editors. She's now an organizer as well. Um, She is trained as an architect, but she has been always interested in questions of ecology and also environmental and social sustainability. We also were curious about what she would bring to the project because she has been always keen on working with different media. She's been, you know, also uh, working with field architecture for a while. So we thought that combining design and writing seemed, you know, to somehow suit her very well. So in the case of the writers, the initial inspiration was to look for writers within the Caribbean community in the Netherlands. Because when we first started kind of developing the idea for Stories on Earth, I was I was personally inspired by my previous fellowship where I realized how much Caribbean writers have basically tackled with nature as a as a well, yeah, as a character in, in literature, like in Caribbean literature, there's this kind of complex way of, uh, of a complex approach to nature. It's not like this romantic idealization, but this uh, dealing with also, I guess, the indifference of nature and how it, but how it can also be like this, this how would say, this place of sustenance, but also of danger. So... We first approached several Caribbean writers, but of course also due to the pandemic that kind of uh, changed. So one of the first writers we approached and who immediately agreed to participate is Karen Lachmi Singh. So she has roots in Suriname, and but well, she's a and, but also has worked with uh, like environmental causes. Her literary career is also quite varied, like with poetry, but also a background in theater. So she seems in that sense. Uh, perfect fit because also initially we wanted to do let them create something within the space so that could have been also a, a good knowledge to, to have in, in that case another writer with Surinamese roots is uh, called Mist on the Mass is basically his uh, his pen name um, and he lives in Rotterdam and he's also published a book about um, this kind of more this magical um, fairy tale aspect and, but he also works with music, and he's a spoken word artist. So we already have like two very kind of uh, people with a, f- a varied background in their output, creative output. And finally, we rounded off the group with uh, Bassam Saad, who's also very well 
known in the field architecture scene because he's one of our editors based in Berlin and because he also has his own artistic practice uh, along with writing and a, a trained architect so of course a perfect fit even if he's not Caribbean but hey <laughs> in the end that's not the most important factor you kind of given me the perfect um, way of like easing into the next part of what I wanted to talk about, which was, um, I mean, there seems to be a theme where there's unsurprisingly, I guess, a sort of architectural thread with quite a lot of the people contributing to the, these videos that the Stories Enough project kind of encompasses. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the spaces that are, um, are covered in, in the um in the various videos, they kind of uh, basically touch upon three different, for want of a better word, um, for want of a less sort of boring architectural word, uh, three spatial typologies. So you have Rhino, an alternate story by Anna Maria Fink and Miss Dan Damas, uh, which concentrates on the zoological garden. Then there's the sacred planetary garden by Karen Lechmersing and Angelo Renner, which relates to the botanical garden. And then the great reanimation by our very own Amna Salati and Basam Saad, which covers the natural history museum. I wanted to know, I guess, what is it about these spaces that speaks to the wider theme of stories on Earth, i.e. the false human non-human dichotomy and its role in enabling unsustainable resource extraction? Uh, well, basically all three spaces, which we chose as like starting off points for the project, they, what they all have in common is that they put forth this, this narrative of the human and the non-human, of the, the strict uh, divide between us and, well, and them. And in a way, they uh, they also all have their their roots in a certain sense in the cabinet of curiosities. They they basically all narrativize this this binary that has actually made it possible for us to justify dominating, um, but our our environment, but also each other, and so it made it like um, I guess a kind of a easy way to start questioning how space can be utilized in this way and then also start to kind of break down, I guess, this 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 tactic or technique or to, to challenge us to think beyond the narratives that these, these spaces push onto us. Mostly, like, we wanted spaces that were somehow evidently creating this spatial manifestation, this physical manifestation of this dichotomy. Like, if you think about it, you could almost immediately imagine what is this line that separates us and them in all three of these examples, right? You can imagine the bars in the zoo, for example. You can imagine, of course, like this sort of green fences that separate the path where you walk from, like, this cultivated garden where the different botanical species are at the botanical garden and you can also um, you know we all think of like this glass panel always like separating us and the objects that we're looking at in a museum so we thought that it was interesting to since you know we were doing something quite abstract in a way like we were asking these people to collaborate and to come up with like new narratives and new stories we thought it was nice to have this really physical and like 
graspable. I don't know if that's a word, but like super easy to, to grasp and to visualize physical manifestation of this separation. There's a very obvious identifiable through line between these three different videos, you know, and the, and the topics that they engage with. And I think you kind of distilled it perfectly into this. Yeah, the way that architecture kind of establishes the dividing line, you know, in, in all of these particular settings. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, it's just really nice um, to uh, to sort of have it brought together in that quite neat description that you just gave. I hadn't really thought about it in such a clear way and thinking as well about like architecture's responsibility, I suppose, for sort of enabling that dividing line for basically creating the, uh, you know, the, the actual necessary barriers to, to, to sort of instill this dichotomy between human and non-human and make it kind of lived in, I suppose. And this partly kind of leads into my next question, uh, which was about the, role of time because you know we've kind of dealt with the spaces now but there is a sort of temporal aspect to this project it is interesting i i didn't bring it up in the notes but that this does also the, the all of these typologies do kind of emerge at the same time right they they come about during the moment of western imperial expansion i guess like or the high stage of it in the 19th century but the, the rise of these spaces traces perfectly along that line. Um, I don't know if you wanted to comment on that at all. I mean, it, it, to me, it's still very confusing because I think they have been formalized as we know them now in that period that you were mentioning, but at the same time, they all had roots in very ancient times. It's always difficult to trace back the exact moment when these typologies were born. And I think it's a little bit the same with, you know, when we're talking about imperialism, like there were, of course, proto forms of this, like way back in time. But then, of course, they formalized around this period. Yeah, so that's the tricky part, because, of course, like, um, I say you can say these impulses are just part of, I guess, all kinds of societies that collect plants and animals to collect anything around us and I guess it says more about well of course the, these these typologies really spread and developed and um, professionalized because this was a period of of course like imperial um, expansion and also yes like you said there's like this proto-capitalism but then it, it became like more refined or what we know as but it's capitalism now on the backs of like this knowledge that was uh, uh, acquired and you you needed like these collections to base your knowledge over to um how do you put the, the the drive to understand the world was also a way to, to dominate the world right since we're already i guess talking about historical time i i wanted to move on to talking a little bit about the uh, actual setting of, of these uh, three videos. So the sacred planetary garden goes back into prehistory while the uh, great reanimation is revolving around the recent past, the present and the not too distant future. And then Rhino, an alternative story, is explicitly futuristic. You know, it covers quite a lot of ground and maybe it's a bit too easy to suggest that it is playing with 
uh, notions of time and, and, and history, but I'd be interested to know what importance you attach to these different concepts of time, breaking with the sort of Western notion of an endless present, that there is kind of alternative futures and also sort of unrealized long histories that, that have been kind of uncovered by these videos. Yeah, I think that's more the point, right? That it's not specifically about like past and future and like something that is like strictly present, but mostly that, for example, you mentioned that Anand Meets Project is like specifically futuristic, but I think that that's an interpretation, you know, that's your interpretation of it. And you could see that also as something that just unfolds like a different future or like a different present or like a different reality in which we're not really looking at when what happened but like we're looking at different possibilities i i, I mean i think like to rephrase it i could say that like it's more of a cyclical than a linear notion of time right exactly yeah i, I mean that also of course as Daphne was mentioning before we were looking at caribbean like uh literature but also at pre-scientific mythology for example greek mythology but in general about different ways of approaching reality somehow in general and non-linear time of course is a big part of that and we really wanted to put the focus on the relationship rather than on the unfolding of events so the the stories are always about this relationship between the human and the non-human and not so much about when a certain event happened or what kind of consequence it had for like the future or the eventual reality that would happen later. So, I mean, also, of course, one of the video is talking about this plant or like the first plant that was ever born on Earth and that I mean, you could imagine that as like being, of course, set in the past, but the idea is also that the project wants to bring forth like this connection between today and what we are living today and how we are still connected to that plant, even if it's like so distant in time. And I think that the same goes, for example, for the project about the museum in Berlin, right? Like... Of course, there is a connection with like recent events and you could see that as like being part of our present, but also as being part of a possible next future. But you could also see that as a possible alternative reality that we're not just looking at right now. I don't know if, unless, unless Daphne, you wanted to add anything, we could bring things back to the endless present and um, talk a little bit about the actual event coming up yeah so uh on the 24th of september there's a sort of a presentation of the dutch pavilions parallel program in uh spazio punch in the geodeca uh, between five and seven o'clock in the evening yeah i don't know uh i think it's quite funny actually this this particular talking point because we um obviously had um this this um kind of hastily released article around the time that the pandemic was hitting written by me uh saying basically fuck biennales and we should stop doing it and um 
I really feel like, you know, it's gone, it's been a long time since we, that, that article was written and I really don't have, I don't feel that strongly about it. I was sort of thinking back, like I don't, but there is a sort of um, a tricky thing to kind of untangle, I guess, it, with this, that we are now going to the Venice Biennale and you could say that like, yeah, I'm one editor and we're not, Feral Architecture is one voice. Uh, which is true. And I can also say, like, I never really stood by these words, but I think it might be interesting to just sort of uh, talk about the fact that we, I think we all kind of believe it, but we're also, you know, we're, we're not highly paid people who can kind of make principled stands and then stand by them all the time. And also, you know, like we can say something and be hypocritical about it. I think I'll leave it to you now because I feel like I've just sort of like anticipated some of your arguments and but I don't know one of you want to talk about that actually I do agree with the essay you wrote and let's say the larger scheme of things we should question like all these um, events basically what what is the actual point is it like the network and there, there can also be value in networking but it's another story and what does it do specifically to the place Venice? And is it really an inclusive event? And But I guess, and I, also our intention was not to go to Venice because the parallel program is part of the Dutch pavilion. We wanted to do something in the Netherlands accessible to more people. But of course, the pandemic kind of threw a wrench into our plans. We had to adapt and, and go online basically. So why we're going to Venice also because they asked us, because there wasn't a real proper opening. There aren't any proper events. It's just some way of still kind of coming together. For this whole period now, for almost two years, we haven't really also, only through Zoom really, I'd say, collaborated also with the other parallel programs. So in a way, it is nice to finally be able to see them and uh, to talk um, face to face. Basically, like, how, how could we refuse, right? It's also a nice way of, of finalizing the project. Having one of those orangey-colored drinks that you were so against in the piece. <laughs> well, you know, that actually came from Mark, because originally we, we co-wrote it, but I don't know if he took his name off because he was like, I care about my career too much or something like that. <laughs> so, so it just ended up being me. Um, but no, it was also because I wrote most of it. But I, I, I've actually never been. So like, I, I, I have no strong feelings about orange drinks or not. You know, <laughs> you go, you go get yourself some Aperol spritz, or what's the other one? Uh, I, I also maybe well Campari spritz, of course. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. But I also <laughs> wanted to add maybe to that that in a way we still are, you know, like not respecting, I don't want to be so strong in my phrasing, but like we still behaved within the project somehow in line with our open criticism of the whole Biennale system. So the budget that we actually got for the project that we won through this call for projects has been completely invested in supporting these artists, like these designers and these writers and in supporting our own work, of course, in like producing this breeze block and, and me and Daphne's work in, you know, organizing and curating this whole project and in like producing the video, of course. 
actually we should mention. Yes, I was thinking of that we should definitely not forget Juan Benavides. He was the filmmaker who helped all of us, or specifically our writers and uh, designers, to develop their videos because without him there would have been nothing. So we're very, exactly. very grateful for. Yeah, and and he was great in like turning these visions that were. I would say rather abstract when we first went to him into something so beautifully put together, I would say. But in general, yeah, I was just saying basically that we still manage to spend the money in a way that we are proud of. And, and of course, like the whole event is just like us visiting the Biennale and like presenting the project in Venice together with the uh, with the other projects of the parallel program but that also is not the only way through which we will present the project because after that event in Venice the video series will be available on field architecture website so we are of course uh, making it as widely accessible as possible as all of our articles and breeze blogs and, and podcasts and so forth So I think, um, yeah, that we can have a drink, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just stupid, isn't it? Because it's like thinking about, there's no sort of moratorium on failed architecture editors being present in Venice between the months of what, like, summer, basically, um, and autumn. Uh, anyway, no, I, I think, yeah, fair enough. Uh, you mentioned briefly that the videos will be made available on the website i think maybe as a kind of final roundup maybe it's nice to just uh, get you to speculate on the potential afterlives of this project so we were of course thinking that for the venice biennale we got into these topics but from a more creative approach and we looked at space and we look at these different manifestations of how this dichotomy between human and non-human materialize in, in our everyday life and in the spaces of everyday life. But then, of course, we are extremely aware of the fact that even in our own research and uh, in these projects, we've been only scratching the surface and, and we think that these topics are becoming more and more relevant. And that uh, as field architecture, we are very much interested in continuing investigating. You've been listening to Failed Architecture Breeze Blocks, hosted and edited this time by me, Charlie Clamos, with guests Chiara Dorbolo and Daphne Bakker, and a theme produced by Natalia Dominguez-Rangel. This was the first in a series of four episodes discussing the Stories on Earth project. Stay tuned for further conversations with each of the three participating writer-designer pairings, hosted by FA editors Kristen Hu and Ada Hisala-Olu.